Man, beautiful fall day. Thanks for coming tonight on one of the nicest days of the fall. Got a question. Have you ever asked the question, is this too good to be true? We probably all have before, haven't we? Whether it's an investment offer promising a 20, 25% return on investment in six months, whether it's that $5 iPhone 14 on Facebook Marketplace, whether it's that random phone call giving you a free vacation. Is it too good to be true? Yes, it certainly is. But is that statement always true? If it seems too good to be true, must it be too good to be, too good to be true? No, I mean, certainly there's exceptions to that proverb, aren't there? So how do we know the difference? How do we know between a scam and what actually might be genuine great news? Well, we put on our detective hats and we do a little bit of investigation. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine that I get a phone call that's labeled spam risk. You ever get those? No, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure I'm the only one that gets those phone calls. And I uh, do something very wise and I decide that I'm going to pick up the phone and answer it. I'm sure you've never done that before either. And uh, the person on the other end of the line, speaking in a very thick accent, informs me that I have been randomly selected for a free cruise. Seven days, seven nights to the Caribbean. All I need to do is give him my date of birth and my credit card number to cover the extra expenses. What do you think I'm going to do? Well, I got one of those phone calls today, and I'll tell you what I did. I walked down to Brian Niemeyer's office and gave them his credit card information. (laughs) Just kidding. Don't answer the phone, right? But let's uh, look at it another way. Let's say that I get a phone call from one of my best friends from college. And he says, you know, it's the end of the year. I did really well in sales, and I got a great bonus. And I want to take the guys on a trip. Sometime next summer, you can bring your wife. I'm going to pay for everything. All I need is your date of birth, and I need your credit card number just so that we can have it on file in case you decide to bring a bunch of extra charges on your hotel room. What do you think I'm going to say? Yeah, sign me up. Let's go. What's the difference? They're offering the same thing. They're offering a free vacation, aren't they? The difference is the trustworthiness of the source. Remember our background in 2 Peter. You can turn there if you have your Bible. We're going to be in end of chapter 1 tonight. Remember the background. Peter is writing to churches in Asia Minor, and there's these false teachers who've arisen from within the ranks of these churches. They looked like legit Christians at first, but then they start to open their mouths, and they started to teach things, preach things that were not in line with Orthodox Christianity. They were false teachers. And Peter is writing not just to condemn the false teachers, but to warn the church to stay as far away from them as humanly possible, to not allow them to be in the church. And they preached a couple of different heresies, but Peter's going to talk about one in our text tonight. They suggested, they claimed that the second coming of Christ was a myth, that Peter just made it up. Look at 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Okay, let's pause there. It's an important introductory verse. We see what Peter is saying. The false teachers accuse 
Peter and the rest of the apostles by fabricating some myth about Jesus' return. Here's what it sounded like. Jesus' second coming, that's a fairy tale. That's too good to be true. It's not reliable. Santa's not real. Peter Pan, he's got to move out of Neverland. You're living in a fairy tale. Grow up. That's what the false teachers were saying. Peter was just making up some Disney myth. But the word that Peter uses in the text for coming is the Greek word parousia. In the New Testament, it's always used to talk about the second coming of Christ. Now, take a step back for a moment. When you and I think about the second coming, or when we think about the gospel, is there a chance that it sounds too good to be true? Think about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that on our own, we're sinful and we're wicked, and we've earned by our own sinful behavior eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. But God sent his son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, who lived and died and rose in our place, offering us new life and forgiveness and reconciliation and hope and a purpose, not by anything that we've done, but completely by his, his grace. And we simply respond by saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. That's the good news of the gospel. Doesn't that sound too good to be true? It's the good news. But we're living in the already not yet. We're living in between the times of, of Jesus' ascension back to heaven, and we're still waiting for his return to come back and, and restore his kingdom and make everything new. But think about what's going to happen at the second coming. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more crying, no more pain anymore. All those former things are going to pass away. He's going to make everything new. Think about practically what that means. The chronic pain, the mental illness that you're dealing with, be gone forever. We're not going to have to worry about hurricanes destroying hundreds, thousands of square miles of our country. We're not going to have to worry about evil dictators murdering thousands of innocent people out of greed and selfishness. You're not going to have to worry about saying no to that nagging temptation for the 5,000th time. It'll be a distant memory. That's what's going to happen as the second coming. Does it sound too good to be true? Well, maybe it is. That's what the false teachers thought. You just made it up. Jesus is reigning in your heart, but he's not going to come back in bodily form. So who do we believe? Do we believe, do we believe Peter who's saying, Jesus is coming back any day? Or do we believe the false teachers who are saying, no, Peter, you're making it up? Well, we put on our detective hats and we've got to decide who's the trustworthy source. So in the rest of our text, Peter helps us understand why he's a far more trustworthy source than these false teachers. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter begins to outline his credibility, begins to outline why he is someone that we should believe, someone that we should trust. But even before we get into what Peter's talking about in verse 17, look at what he says at the back end of verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That word eyewitnesses is key, isn't it? Here's what Peter's saying. Those false teachers, they didn't walk with Jesus. They didn't see the miracles. They didn't hear the teaching. They, they weren't commissioned by Jesus for his ministry. They didn't run and see the empty tomb. They didn't see Jesus' resurrected body. They didn't hear his great commission sermon. 
That separates Peter from you and I. It separates Peter from the false teachers. He's not on the same plane as us because Peter was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, his ministry, his resurrection. He was commissioned by Jesus for apostolic ministry. You and I will never meet the criteria to be an apostle. But Peter was an eyewitness, and we can trust him as a source. So that's our first reason that the second coming is, is not too good to be true, the experience of the eyewitnesses, the experience of the eyewitnesses. Because you and I weren't there to witness the miracles, we weren't there to hear the teachings, we need to trust the testimony of those who were there, like Peter. And in the following verses, then Peter establishes his own personal credibility. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes for just a moment. If you were writing a book, a letter to some churches trying to establish your credibility, that you knew that Jesus was going to come back, what account would you use? What story would you use from the Gospels to help them understand that, hey, you can trust me. I know what I'd do. I'd go to that time when Peter was in the boat with the rest of the disciples and Jesus was walking on water. And Jesus says, Peter, get out of the boat. And he takes a walk across the water in the middle of a storm. I know it was only for a couple seconds, but come on, that's incredible. But that's not where Peter goes. Or maybe Peter would go to that time right beside the Sea of Galilee, right after Jesus' resurrection, after Peter had denied Jesus, and, and he's not sure what, what that relationship is going to look like after the resurrection. And, and Jesus restores Peter and, and commissions, him, commissions him for ministry and says, Peter, go feed my sheep. And that relationship is restored. Maybe he'd go there. Or if I were Peter, I'd go to the ascension. You know in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is with his disciples, and, and then Jesus gives them his last sermon, and, and he starts rising up to heaven, he disappears in the clouds, and then these two angels come, and they tell the disciples, what are you doing staring at heaven? He's going to come back in the same way that he ascended. If you were Peter, wouldn't you go to that story to demonstrate your credibility? But he didn't. He went to an event that might be one of the most important events in all of the Gospels, yet one of the events that you and I talk about maybe the least, the transfiguration. Look at Matthew chapter 16. You can turn there. It's what Peter references in verses 17 and 18. He talks about the transfiguration. That starts in the beginning of verse, or chapter 17, but we're going to start at the end of verse 16. We talked about chapter 16 a little bit over the summer. It's a, a very important chapter in the book of Matthew. It's where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then Peter says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then a couple verses later, Jesus is talking about his death, and by the hand of the religious leaders, and Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, stop talking like that. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Not what we call Peter's highest moment. And then as Jesus continues, he's talking about the cost of discipleship and says, if anyone's going to come after me, he's got to deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. I mean, this is an intense chapter. But the end of chapter 16, look at verse 27. For the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus uses for himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. What's Jesus talking about? It's the second coming, isn't it? Look at verse 28. 
Don't miss this. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 17 verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, probably Mount Tabor, about 1,900 feet above sea level, somewhere by the Sea of Galilee. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's an event that we call the transfiguration because it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word there is metamorpho, probably sounds familiar. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. It's not just something that happens internally, but it was something that happened internally with dramatic external effects. Jesus went from looking like a a normal human being to being something, someone that Peter and James and John had never seen before in their entire life. His face was radiating something glorious and bright and on the same plane as the sun. His clothes were white, but they weren't just white. They were glowing. They were radiating light. I'm sure Peter and James and John had wished that they'd remembered their sunglasses that day. And then there on top of the mountain, it's not just Jesus, but there appears Moses and Elijah. How did Peter, James, and John know what Moses and Elijah looked like? (laughs) I'm not really sure. We'll have to ask them when we get to heaven. But they're just there having a conversation with Jesus. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Moses and Elijah are two of the most important, some would say the two most important figures in the entire Old Testament. Moses, he was the man who received the law, the Old Covenant, on top of Mount Sinai. He was the one who initiated bringing the people out of slavery and bringing them into the promised land. When the religious leaders, when they talked about the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, they called it the law of Moses because he was the author, he was the redactor of the law. Very important guy. But then there's Elijah. Moses came to initiate the covenant while Elijah came in one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. He came to encourage the people to keep the covenant when literally no one was keeping the covenant. He was maybe the foremost miracle worker throughout the entire Old Testament. He raised a widow's son back to life. He called down fire from heaven that consumed an altar in his showdown with the prophets of Baal. He, he prayed and the rain stopped. He prayed and the rain started. He parted the Jordan River. He never died. He was taken directly to heaven without having to go through that painful dying process. Moses and Elijah are significant. Together, they represent the entirety of the Old Testament. And from their ministry, they foreshadowed directly and indirectly the day when the Messiah would come and initiate a new covenant. I just love that Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on top of the mountain just shooting the breeze. I would have loved to hear what they were talking about. But you know what happened? Like it often happened where Peter does what Peter did and he opens his mouth. And he, he says, 
Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The account in Luke's gospel tells us that Peter actually doesn't know what he was talking about. He just kind of opened his mouth and words just kind of came out. He was so in awe that he just started talking. Not a good trait when you're surprised. And he says that he could build tents. It could be translated shelters. I don't really know what Peter had in mind. Um, Maybe, you know, he was just kind of thinking that the six of them were just going to hang out on top of the mountain for a couple of days, and he was just going to build them a tent. Now, where were Peter, James, and John going to stay? I have no idea. Peter hadn't thought that far ahead. But it's subtle. But Peter's reply reveals a misplaced priority in his understanding of Jesus. He wants to build all three men, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, a tent, a shelter. He viewed all three on the same plane. But even before Peter can get the last word out of his mouth, what happens? A voice comes from the cloud, a voice representing God that corrected Peter's Christology. Verse 5, and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Notice who the voice addresses. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. He's talking to Peter, James, and John. The voice elevates Jesus far above Moses and far above Elijah. Jesus is a greater Moses. Jesus is a better Elijah. He's the son of God, fully God and fully man. And how should the disciples respond? (laughs) They've got to listen to him. Just as they listen to Moses, just as they listen to Elijah. But right before the voice speaks, what happens? There's a bright cloud. I don't think we have a a context or a picture for what this would have been like or what this experience would have been like. Because when you and I think of a cloud, clouds aren't bright. Clouds are just clouds. But this was a bright cloud. And anytime we see the word cloud, especially in the Old Testament text, we've got to ask, what does this mean? What's it talking about? Because the word cloud was synonymous in the Old Testament oftentimes with the manifest presence of God. A pillar of cloud representing God's presence led the people of Israel through the desert on their way to the promised land. While Moses was speaking with God on top of Mount Sinai for days, receiving the Old Testament law, it was a cloud that covered the top of the mountain. A cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. This type of cloud wasn't a cute little cumulus cloud that you and I see on a summer day. This was the manifest presence of God radiating glory and brightness. This would have been the most insane experience of Peter, James, and John's life. But before they knew it, the moment passed. And they look up, and Moses and Elijah, they're gone. And Jesus looks like he did minutes before. But of all of the events that Peter could have looked to to demonstrate his credibility, this is it. So what's the big deal about the transfiguration. Wow, I'm so glad that you asked. This was such a deeper moment than just a a spiritual time for Peter, James, and John. Peter helps us understand in 2 Peter chapter 1 that they received the greatest earthly glimpse of Jesus' eternal glory. They received a glimpse behind the veil 
of Jesus' glory that had been veiled, had been hidden in His earthly ministry. They saw what Jesus will look like in His glorified body. They saw what Jesus will appear like at His second coming. The transfiguration is the most accurate picture in the entire New Testament of what the second coming is going to look like and be like. When Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom, you and I are going to have an experience just like Peter, James, and John. I hope that blows your mind. Because I wonder what we think of, what we expect when we think about the second coming, when we think about Jesus' glorious return. I wonder if this is the picture that we have in mind, that if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, that, you know, we rise and meet Jesus in the air, and we just quietly kind of ascend from our station at work, our desk chair, it's the middle of the night, right, and we're, we just kind of rise up, and there's Jesus, and we have a cool moment, and we just kind of continue on to heaven, and it's peaceful, That's not what happened in Matthew chapter 17, is it? Yes, we're going to meet Jesus in the air, but I don't think it's going to be a quiet, peaceful event. The glory and the splendor of Jesus will shine so brightly that we're going to do everything that we can to shield our eyes. Just look at how the disciples responded in Matthew 17. They were utterly terrified. They instinctively fell on their faces in worship, in reverence, in awe, in fear. When Jesus returns in all of his glory, I think we're going to have a similar response. I think we're probably going to fall flat on our face because of the glory of the eternal Son of God. And I wonder if Jesus will say the same thing to us that he said to his disciples. Don't be afraid. He put his hand on their shoulder and said, don't fear. Stand up. I wonder if Jesus will do the same thing for us. Another reason that the second coming isn't too good to be true, is the testimony of the transfiguration. That's our second principle tonight, the testimony of the transfiguration. Peter was there. He met with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. The second coming, it's not a myth, because Peter got that glimpse behind the curtain, behind the veil, of what the glory of Jesus' second coming is going to be like. But it was certainly significant that Peter was with Moses and Elijah there on the mountain, the two bedrocks of the Old Testament who stood as a representation of the entire law and prophets, really the entirety of the Old Testament. And Peter continues with the idea of the prophets in, uh, in our text, starting in verse 19, 2 Peter 1, verse 19. And we, probably the prophets, or the apostles rather, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a light, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That morning star is a reference to Jesus' second coming. Verse 20, knowing that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Peter uses the word, prophetic word, or scripture in our text, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. And Peter's saying that because of the transfiguration, because he was with Jesus on the mountain and got the glimpse behind the veil, that he has the prophetic word more fully confirmed. I don't think that we need the word more in the English text. Peter looks to the transfiguration as a reminder that the prophetic word from the Old Testament that Moses and Elijah represent, their prophetic word is completely reliable. Here's what Peter's reminding us, that the second coming of Christ is not anything new. 
Peter didn't make it up. It wasn't even introduced first by Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament foreshadowed the second coming of Christ. Remember how it works when a prophet would receive a vision of the future. Maybe a good analogy, this isn't original to me, you've probably heard it before, is sort of like looking at mountains in the distance. Let's say you're hundreds of miles away from the Rockies, and you look at mountains ahead of you. You can see one mountain, you can maybe see the second behind it, but we're not sure the distance between the mountains. When the prophets in the Old Testament looked ahead at the incarnation, the first coming, or Jesus' second return, they saw both mountains, but couldn't really tell the distance between them. And now today, you and I are living between the comings. We're living in the valley between the mountains, and and we can look back at the Old Testament text and see, well, this is partially fulfilled, but we're still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment. We're still waiting for that second mountain. A great example of that is from the book of Daniel. You don't have to turn there, but you can just listen to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel has a vision. This is what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. We're still waiting the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. When the Son of Man will come in all of his glory and establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Peter says, don't just believe me. Trust the prophets. That's our third principle, the promise of the prophets. The promise of the prophets. Then in verse 20 and 21, Peter actually goes a step farther to help you and I understand why we can trust the prophecy that came from the Old Testament and then by extension the New Testament, that the authors, they didn't just create or invent visions or prophecies. Instead, Peter includes one of the most important statements in all of the Bible on inspiration and inerrancy. Look at verse 20 and 21. Knowing that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love how Peter explains exactly how biblical inspiration works, that no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there for carried along provides a picture of wind in the sails of a sailboat, pushing it to where it's supposed to go, filling the sails, providing the power it needs to to move. Peter's saying that without the movement of the Holy Spirit, there would be no scripture, no prophecy from the Old Testament, by extension, the New Testament writers. The Spirit spoke through the writers, spoke through the prophets, recording the exact words that God intended. He used the human authors, which means that they still maintained their own style, their own voice, their own language as they wrote the words of Scripture. God spoke through them while allowing them to speak and write in a personal way. And as you and I read the Bible, as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's clear that we see the style of the individual writers coming out. Peter reminds us that God's Word is inspired. That word inspired simply means the exact words that God intended. Peter reminds us that God's word is inerrant, 
which means without error. So as we finish tonight, we're going to spend the rest of our time having a family talk on inerrancy. Last week, we talked about doubt, and we talked right to the heart. This is a little more academic, but it's going to be fun. Inerrancy. I believe that God's Word is without error, and I want to take the next couple of minutes to explain some reasons why I believe God's Word is without error. Some people look at Scripture, and they compare two texts, maybe from the Old Testament, and say, you know, this text uses a number one way. This text is talking about the same event, but it's a different number. The Bible's not inerrant. There's a mistake. Inerrancy doesn't mean that, um, maybe let me phrase that a different way. Because the authors wrote within their own styles and within specific genres, they often used ordinary language, numerical rounding, loose quotations, and unconventional grammar. It doesn't mean that the Bible is without error, but it reflects the literary constructs of the writer and the genre in which they were writing. In other words, let's say that one of the Old Testament authors rounded and said about 14,000. Well, let's say there were actually 13,995 people there. Does that mean the Bible is inerrant? Or does that mean the Bible has an error? No, it just means that the author was doing what you'd expect and rounding up to 14,000. It's part of the genre. Or how about this? We'll do a little bit of uh, interaction. This is an ESV, the English Standard Version. If I held this up and said, true or false, this is inerrant. It's without error. Raise your hand if you'd say, yes, that's true. Raise your hand if you'd say, no, that's false. And raise your hand if you're too scared to answer the question. (laughs) And raise your hand if you didn't put your hand up at all. Wow, I'm disappointed. Okay. You knew it was a trick question. Because if you're going to open your ESV Bible and uh, talk to a skeptic and say, this is an errand, this doesn't have any errors. Someone who's smart, someone who's read some Bart Ehrman is going to look at your Bible and open up to the end of Mark and say, you see that note? It says uh, the ending of Mark, it, it, it wasn't in the original manuscript. Or they're going to open to John chapter 8 and they're going to say, that's not in the original manuscript. Your Bible, it has an error in it. So if somebody point blank asks me the question, is your ESV without error? It's kind of an unfair question. It's an inflammatory question. But I would say, no, my ESV is not without error. When we talk about inerrancy, this is an important definition. We'll talk about this in our small groups a little bit. So remember this, this is one of your small group questions. Inerrancy means that the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts. It's very important for us to understand. Now, wow, if, if the ESV that I'm holding, if this isn't, if this might have an error or two, then why am I reading it? Okay, don't freak out. Take a step back. We can be very confident that the Bible that we have is incredibly, incredibly reliable. We actually don't have any copies of the original manuscripts of the Old Testament or the New Testament. We probably have some copies of the copies, but we don't have any of the originals of Paul's letters, for example. But through a discipline called textual criticism, which takes all of the manuscripts and combines them together and compiles what we believe is the authentic original text, we are very, very confident in the authority and the accuracy of the text that we have today. For example, 
there are over 24,000 partial manuscripts of the New Testament text, 6,000 of which are in Greek, Koine Greek, the language that the New Testament was mostly written in. If we stacked all of them on top of each other, they would be one mile high. That's a lot of manuscript evidence. Some of them date all the way back to the second century AD. And through that discipline of textual criticism where we combine those manuscripts together, we know that there's less than 1% disagreement uh, between the texts. We can be confident that over 99% of what we have in our translations today is, is accurate. It's what the original writers wrote. What about that 1%? Well, it can be explained away usually by common scribal errors if they'd skip a line or skip a word or try to harmonize gospel accounts. And then the two texts that I referenced earlier, the end of Mark, John chapter 8, we're not quite sure what to do with those. Depends who you ask. Um, That's a longer conversation than we have time for today. But the bottom line is, let's say they weren't in the original text. Are we losing any of the message of the New Testament without the beginning of John 8 and the end of Mark 16. No, we're not. They don't affect the message of the New Testament. What we have today is excellent, and we can be confident that it's remarkably accurate and close to the original. But when we talk about inerrancy, we say that the Bible is without error in what? Original manuscripts. That was a little weak, but that's fine. Inerrancy also requires that you and I interpret Scripture correctly, we need to remember the two most important concepts in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is simply the study of right biblical interpretation. And if you remember these two things, you are well on your way to being a professional Bible scholar. Okay? The first is context. Everyone say context. Okay, nice job. You're passing that first test. It's important for us to know the context of a passage that we're looking at. We've got to know the logical context. Uh, for example, Philippians 4.13. Anyone have that memorized? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's every athlete's favorite verse. They put it on their eye paint. They put it on their basketball shoes. But what happens when we read the context? Well, we're realizing that Paul is not talking about winning the NBA finals, Steph Curry. (laughs) Paul is actually talking about living in prison. And there's days when he has exactly what he needs. And there's days when he's suffering to put food on the table. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can keep doing the work of ministry that God has called me to do. That's what he's talking about, not winning the NBA finals. We have to know the context. We also have to know the historical context, the cultural context, that it helps for us to have a good study Bible and understand the audience that the original writers were speaking to. It might help us understand the text. We also need to know the big picture context of all of Scripture We need to know where we fit within God's redemptive plan. For example, the Old Testament law, like Leviticus, um, the ceremonial law doesn't apply to you and me. The sacrificial system, it doesn't apply to you and me. Why? Well, because Jesus came, he lived and died as the once and for all sacrifice to abolish the sacrificial system. So if you read Leviticus and you think, oh, you know, I'm supposed to do some sacrifices, so you go steal your neighbor's goat and sacrifice it, one, you're going to have a really mad neighbor. (laughs) And two, you're doing really bad hermeneutics. We've got to understand where we fit within God's redemptive plan. We have to understand the big picture context. So the two most important words in hermeneutics, one is context. And then the second one 
is genre. Everyone say genre. Nice job. You know how genre works because you all passed, I hope, high school English class. And we read different genres differently, right? The way that you read the U.S. Constitution is a little different the way that you're going to read the newspaper, which is different than the way that you're going to read Shakespeare. Now you're all talking about passing high school English. I regret making that joke. (laughs) We've got to understand genre because when we look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, we look at Scripture, there are a number of different genres, I'm going to miss some, but I'll try to do my best. There's narrative, there's poetry, there's law, there's epistle, there's proverb. What am I missing? There's prophecy. Thank you. There's history. And Bex is going to keep going, right? So we'll, we'll fill the rest of that in later. I could have looked at my notes, but I decided not to. When we look at different genres, we've got to understand the rules of the genre. For example, if you read a narrative, it's telling you what happened. It's not telling you how to live. There's a big difference there. If we did everything that King David did in his life, we would end up in prison. We don't want to live like King David in every step. Instead, we use other types of genre like law or like epistle, Paul's letters, to help us understand what David did, whether it was good or evil. Think of Gideon, for example. God gave Gideon a command, and Gideon didn't like the command. So Gideon decided, well, I'm going to test God, and I'm going to put a fleece out in the field, and if it does one thing one one day and one thing the next day, then I'll do what God wants. God, confirm your command. God does something a bit unusual, and he actually complies by Gideon's request. So does that mean that anytime you and I are deciding if we want to take a different job, that we can go put a fleece out in the field? No, that's not what that means. Gideon actually disobeyed scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 16, don't put the Lord your God to the test. God still answered Gideon's request, but that does not mean what Gideon did was a good thing. We have to be careful when we're reading narratives that we interpret it through the lens of other revelation like law or like epistle. We have to understand genre. Those are the two most important rules of hermeneutics. If we're going to understand the Bible correctly, God's inspired an inerrant word, then we have to interpret it correctly. God's word demonstrates its inerrancy through its accuracy in history. It's really cool to see how the Bible has been confirmed in archaeology time and time again. We could give a bunch of examples. I'm going to give one. For centuries, historians had no clue about Pontius Pilate. Yeah, they read about Pontius Pilate in scripture and in other literature, but archaeologists discovered nothing of Pontius Pilate. He was the governor in Judea when Jesus was crucified. So they thought, oh, the Bible just made that Pilate guy up. Until 1961, when they discovered a stone with Pilate's name inscribed on it in Caesarea Maritima, a really cool site that we'll get to visit on our Israel trip. But it wasn't until 1961 that archaeology confirmed what the Bible already said to be true. It's happened time and time again. The Bible's accurate in history. But one of the things, maybe the thing that sets the Bible apart compared to any other literature that you and I can read is fulfilled prophecy. According to one pastor I respect, there's over 1,800 prophecies throughout Scripture. It's crazy, many of which have already been fulfilled. And we could look at prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that were fulfilled within the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe my favorite is Isaiah chapter 53. You know that text? The suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. It's an incredible text that for centuries, scholars thought that 
this was written after Jesus. It's so obviously talking about Jesus that this was written after Jesus died on the cross. But, you know, conservative Christian scholars are like, no, it's from Isaiah. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But the latest text that we had for centuries in Hebrew of Isaiah was from 1000 AD. That's a thousand years after Jesus. So they thought, ah, there were a couple hundred years in there. They could have just made it up. They invented Isaiah 63 until, 53, until the 1940s. In the Qumran Caves, archaeologists discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which included an entire copy of the Isaiah Scroll, which dated a hundred years or more before the time of Christ. And guess what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Isaiah 53, which proves that it was written before Jesus walked the earth. No more accusing Isaiah 53 of being made up. One of the things that sets the Bible apart is fulfilled prophecy. Well, I hope that our little talk on inerrancy can strengthen our resolve in God's Word, our trust in it, because inerrancy is important. When we let go of inerrancy, it's actually a pretty slippery slope. People start thinking things like, uh, yeah, Genesis, it's all allegorical. Adam and Eve, they're not really historical people. Or, yeah, those those commands that Paul makes in his letters about the boundaries of human sexuality, those are entirely culturally bound, and they really don't apply at all to us today. Or what our false teachers in Second Peter are saying, yeah, that second coming thing, it's just a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's time to grow up. You know, it's so important for us to trust the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy of God's Word. But let me be honest. Inerrancy doesn't do us much good if we're not going to read the Bible. We can trust that it's true. We can trust that there's no errors in the original manuscripts. But if we don't read it, it's not going to matter. Do we understand how much blood has been shed for us to have this? William Tyndale, 1494, was born in England. Brilliant. Smarter than anyone in the room. Oxford educated, fluent in seven languages, plus biblical Greek and Hebrew. Crazy smart. But as he was reading the New Testament in the original language, he was convinced that we could only be saved, we could only be declared righteous by faith in Jesus. And he believed. He believed in the gospel. And as he was studying, he was convinced that the best way for his fellow Englishmen to also believe in Jesus was to have a copy of the Bible in their own language. But you've got to understand the 1500s. You've got to understand the, the scene, the religious scene in the world. People didn't have the Bible in their own language. In England, actually just to suggest that the Bible could be printed into the English language was a capital offense. Because those of us who were seminary trained, who read Latin, we had to interpret the Bible for the masses. It was too holy of a text to put in the, the hands of common people. So... If you didn't have seminary education, you didn't have access to God's Word. But Tyndale knew better. So he decided that it's time for me to start translating this in English. Remember, that's a capital offense. He fled England, and he works his way through the free cities in Europe. He ultimately gets to Worms, and in 1525, he finishes his translation of the New Testament, and they start smuggling it back into England. Here's what one of the most powerful people in all of England said, 
Sir Thomas More, about his translation. It's not worthy to be called Christ's testament, but either Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, the Antichrist. Those are fighting words, aren't they? Yikes. So for the next decade, Tyndale continued to revise his testament and work on the Old Testament, but then he was caught in a trap and wound up getting arrested. And he was tried by the Universal Church and he was condemned as a heretic, but he had to be transferred back to England for his trial. He stood trial and was condemned to death. And he was about to be killed, martyred, and he was given one last chance to recant. Do you know what he said? He prayed and said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he was strangled and burnt. But it was less than 100 years later when the tides turned and Tyndale's work became the foundation of the authorized version, what you and I would call the King James Version. At the time, a groundbreaking translation that allowed God's Word to be distributed to the masses in your language. We take this for granted, don't we? And if you and I were to have coffee with William Tyndale and ask him, what's your Bible reading been like lately? I know what he wouldn't say. (laughs) He wouldn't say cheeks. (laughs) He was so convinced that everyone needed a deep relationship with God's Word. When I think of the blood that's been shed so that I could read this, how sad when it collects dust on the shelf. My prayer for our young adult family is that this year we fall in love with this book. Let me pray. Father, so much in our text tonight, um, and we're thankful for your word um, that's inspired the exact words that you intend. That's inerrant, without error. May you strengthen our trust in your word, but may you not leave it there. May you inspire us to spend time reading it and soaking in it, meditating on it, memorizing it, applying it to our life, talking about it with others, that your word doesn't just become something we talk about, but something we read and something we love. Because through your word, we get to know you and your heart and your love for us. So as we get to talk about this in our small groups tonight, uh, may you guide our conversations in Jesus' name. Amen.